Well, give me that textile workers' union. Textile workers' union. That textile workers' union. It's good enough for me. Oh, it was good enough for Daddy. It's good enough for Daddy. It's good enough for Daddy. It's good enough for me. So give me that textile workers' union. It's good enough for me. Well, it will bring us higher wages. It will bring us higher wages. It will bring us higher wages. It's good enough for me. Now it was good in Massachusetts. It was good in Massachusetts. It was good in Massachusetts. It's good Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We are an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class, a society that democratically meets the needs of the many rather than creating profits for an elite few. Renegade Paradise is a news, commentary, and educational platform based on a socialist analysis from activists on the ground here in the Lowcountry. By sharing our unique socialist perspective with the world, and by lifting up the voices of our allies and comrades, we are creating a space for folks in this part of the country looking to deepen their understanding of leftist politics, but who might not know where to start. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad and diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the left. What unites us is one common goal, to build a different world, a better world. Part of that better world is remembering those who fought and struggled for these ideas before us. Now, down here in the South, we stand in a great tradition of radicalism and workers' power, even if it is one that is mostly kept out of view. We open up this episode with Joe Glazer's rendition of Give Me That Textile Workers' Union from the album Textile Voices, Songs and Stories of the Mill, a song from an important part of South Carolina's history. And as we go through this history today, we'll be sharing some of the songs from the strikes. What most of us know about history is the history of the ruling class. As Utah Phillips put it, I got the history of the generals, an industrialist, and the presidents who didn't get caught. I got the history of those who owned the wealth of the country, but none of the history of those who created it. 
And that's on purpose, isn't it? We are given the boss's history because we live in a world run by capitalists. In this episode, we hope to rectify some of that by discussing the textile workers' strikes in South Carolina, and specifically the battles between mill owners and mill workers that unfolded in 1934 and 1935 in Honeypath in Pelzer, South Carolina. The textile workers' strike of 1934 was the largest labor strike in U.S. history, with over 400,000 workers participating across the country. Just in the South, somewhere in the realm of 170,000 workers took action, which amounted to about two-thirds of the region's workforce in the textile industry. In South Carolina alone, 43,000 women and men joined in the protest, shutting down two-thirds of the state's 200 textile mills. All of this came at a time when unions and organized labor were not very in a very strong position. William Danaher and Vincent Rossigno write in their book, The Voices of Southern Labor, that during the late 20s and early 30s, Southern business owners had accepted the belief that workers in the region were conservative and or apolitical. This was not the case, and in 1934, the tension between these two classes came to a head and thousands of workers walked out to demand better wages, conditions, and dignity. Of course, such massive uprisings didn't happen overnight. In the late 1920s, there were already rumblings of what was to come. In 1929, 800 workers walked out of the Ware-Scholes Manufacturing Company, and another 1,250 walked out of the New England Southern Plant in Pelzer. These actions were followed weeks later by 800 workers walking out of 15 plants across the Piedmont area of South Carolina. These rebellions of labor were put down by the courts, militias, and of course, Red Scare tactics that insinuated that any kind of labor disruption was the work of communists and traitors. Regardless, it is estimated that there were around 80 strikes in South Carolina during 1929. The results of these strikes ultimately did not satisfy the needs of textile workers. They still had to work grueling schedules for poor wages. While the workers suffered, textile bosses got richer and richer. At the start of the century, the textile industry was centered in New England, but by the late 1920s and 1930s, the South had overtaken New England as the center of textile production in the country. By the 1930s, the output of the textile plants in the South was double that of the northern textile industry. As the industry grew, mill owners pressured textile workers across the country to work longer hours. Textile workers became increasingly dissatisfied with the conditions of their labor. In the early 1934, the UTW began to speak of a national strike in response to the widespread industrial tension. This initial threat of workers' action was ultimately diverted when the UTW was made some concessions by the federal government. At the local level, though, and especially in the South, support for a general strike was strong. Locals in Georgia and Alabama began going out on strike during that summer of 1934. In Columbus, Georgia, a city on the Alabama border, the Georgia Webbing and Tape Company had been on strike for over a month when Reuben San Sanders was killed in a scuffle between strikebreakers and strikers. 8,000 people viewed Sanders' body as it lay in state at the Central Textile Hall in the heart of the city on Sunday, August 12th. This prompted the UTW to call a meeting in New York and draw up a list of demands that, if not met, would trigger a national textile workers' strike. The demands included a 30-hour week, minimum wages ranging from $13 to $30 a week, the elimination of the stretch-out, union recognition, and reinstatement of workers fired for their union activities. Support for these demands was especially strong in the southern locals. Mill owners refused to meet with the union, 
and thus the stage was set for the general textile strike. September 1st, Labor Day, the start of the strike. As promised, textile workers across the country went out on strike. And I'm going to read a quote here from one Joe Jacobs about what he saw that day. It was on Labor Day in 1934 that I witnessed the closest thing that this country has had to a revolution. The general textile strike was one of the largest strikes in American history. It was the culmination of homegrown organizing and protest. For many Southern workers, it was the first time they had raised their voices as citizens to challenge the control of mill owners. Governor Blackwood of South Carolina announced that he would deputize the state's mayors, sheriffs, peace officers, and every good citizen to maintain order in the face of the strike, and then called out the National Guard with orders to shoot to kill any picketers who tried to enter the mills that were being picketed. He was not the only one. Other governors took similar actions, and in several places, conflicts between strikers and the forces aligned with capital ended in violence and bloodshed. One amazing thing about this action was the apparent lack of organization by the labor movement. United Textile Workers did not have a large presence in the South. In fact, there were only 10 paid union organizers from the union in the entire region. The walkout was, in many ways, caused by the passage of the National Industrial Recovery Act. The act sought to assuage the class antagonisms festering across the country, or at least that's how it was marketed. In reality, the act was essentially a toothless piece of legislation that generally took into consideration the wants of capitalists over those of working people. The act established the National Recovery Administration, which was tasked to oversee the creation of codes of conduct for particular industries that would reduce overproduction, raise wages, control hours of work, guarantee the rights of workers to form unions, and stimulate an economic recovery. But without any serious means of enforcement, the promise of the act went ultimately unfulfilled. Within a month of the act's passage, 75% of South Carolina mills had established union locals, and by August 1934, there were 279,000 union mill workers across the South, whereas before, there had only been 40,000. A contemporary sociologist, Dade Sappos, speculated that, quote, in order to lure industry to the South, the local realtors and chambers of commerce had been featuring the cheap and contented 100% American labor supply, which, unlike the immigrant workers of the North, was docile and wholly unresponsive to the appeals of labor agitators. The shock and attendant consternation were naturally intense when all these elements were rudely awakened to the realization that the 100% American cheap labor was neither contented nor docile. In general, Sappos continues, the strikers were not organized into unions. Many were so-called leaderless strikes, that is, strikes of textile workers without outside professional leadership or guidance. When you buy clothes on easy terms, the collectors treat you like measly worms. One dollar down, and then Lord knows if you don't make a payment, they'll take your clothes. When you go to bed, you can't sleep. You owe so much at the end of the week. No use to collect, they're all that way. Taking at your door till they get your pay. I'm a gun star, everybody will. Cause you can't make a living at a cotton mill.
When you go to work, you work like the devil At the end of the week, you're not on the level Payday comes, you pay your rent When you get through, you've not got a cent To buy fat back meat, pindo beans Now and then to get turnip greens No use to call it, we're all that way Can't get the money to move away I'm gonna starve, everybody will Cause you can't make a living at a cotton mill $12 a week is all we get How in the heck can we live on that? I got a wife and 14 kids We all have to sleep on two bedsteads Patches on my britches, holes in my hat Ain't had a shave since the wife got fat No use to collect every day at noon The kids get to crying in a different tune I'm a gun star, everybody will Cause you can't make a living at a cotton mill a few days and then they stand just to keep down the working man we can't make it we never will as long as we stay at a lousy mill the poor getting poorer the rich are getting rich if i don't starve i'm a son of a gun no use to call it no use to raise we'll never rest till we're in our grave i'm a gun to starve nobody will cause you can't make a living at a cotton mill For my life, trying to make a living for my kiddies and my wife. Some are needing clothing and some are needing shoes, but I'm getting nothing but them wee broom blues. I've got the blues, I've got the blues, I've got the awful wee broom blues. I've got the blues, the wee broom blues. You loom the slamming shuttles bouncing in the floor And when you flag your fixer you can see that he is sore I'm trying to make a living but I'm thinking I will lose For I'm going crazy with them wee broom blues I've got the blues, I've got the blues I've got the awful wee broom blues I've got the blues, the wee broom blues Harness eyes are breaking with the doubles coming through. The devil's in your alley and he's coming after you. Our hearts are aching, let us take a little booze. For we're going crazy with them wee broom blues. I've got the blues, I've got the blues, I've got the awful wee broom blues. I've got the blues, the wee broom blues. Matter by the score, cloth all rolled back and piled up in the floor. The bats are running empty, strings are hanging to your shoes. I'm simply dying with them wee broom blues. I've got the blues, I've got the blues, I've got the awful wee broom blues. I've got the blues, wee broom blues. 
Karn with Cotton Milk Holic from 1926. Now, this was a song sung by striking mill workers across the country. The song became such an anthem of rebellion by mill workers that authorities in Danville, Virginia tried to outlaw the tune. Now, following that was Weave Room Blues by the Dixon Brothers, another tune of mill workers' dissatisfaction. Music played a key part in the organizing and agitation of Southern mill workers, with such acts as Charlie Poole and his North Carolina Ramblers playing local rallies. One tactic that was developed during this time was the dancing picket, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. The art and song of the mill workers became an important tool in the arsenal of the disaffected workers and deserves more time and attention than I can do on this episode. For more on this, please check out The Voices of Southern Labor by William Danaher and Vincent Rossigno and Joe Glazer's album Textile Voices, Songs and Stories of the Mills. Down in Winsboro, South Carolina, some person put some new verses uh, to the old alcoholic blues. Oh man, sergeant, sitting at the desk, the damn old fool won't give us no rest. He take the nickels off a dead man's eyes, buy Coca-Cola and an Eskimo pie. I got the blues, I got the blues, I got the Winsboro cotton mill blues. Lordy, lordy, schoolin's hard, you know and I know, don't have to tell. You work for Tom Watson, got to work like hell. I got the blues, I got the blues, I got the Winsboro cotton mill blues. When I die, don't you bury me at all Hang me up on the factory wall Place a bobbin in my hand So I can keep on working in the promised land I got the blues, I got the blues I got the Winsboro cotton mill blues Lordy, lordy, schooling's hard You know what I know, don't have to tell You work for Tom Watson, gotta work like hell All my life, ain't got nothing but a barlow knife. It's hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times everywhere. Hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times, cotton mill girls. Hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times everywhere. In 1950, we heard it said, move to cotton country and get ahead. It's hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times everywhere. Hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times, cotton mill girls. Hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times everywhere. Mill girls work hard all day for 14 cents of measly pay. It's hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times everywhere. Hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times, cotton mill girls. Hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times everywhere. Oh, when I die, don't bury me at all. Just hang me up on the spinning room wall. Pickle my bones and alcohol. It's a hard times everywhere. Hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times, cotton mill girls. Hard times, cotton mill girls, hard times everywhere. Cotton Mill Blues, performed by Pete Seeger and New Harmony Sisterhood Band with Cotton Mill Girls. Now let's turn our eyes to the sleepy southern towns of Honeypath and Pelzer. If you're not familiar with the geography of South Carolina, 
These two towns are located in the upstate region, that is, the western counties in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. In fact, you can still visit many of the sites um, where much of what we're about to talk about happened. <clears throat> One thing that it is important to say before we begin. While much of what happened has faded from our collective memory, it was not too long ago that the wounds and anger that lingered from the strikes of 1934 were very fresh and felt. Locals have characterized discussing the strikes of 34 and 35 as taboo and not something that people really want to talk about. The defeat of the workers in these strikes had a lasting impact on the souls of these communities. To this day, South Carolina has the lowest union density in the country, and it would not be a far-fetched to speculate that the events of 1934 and 35 had some role to play in that sad state affairs. September 6, 1934, Honeypath, South Carolina. Workers at the Chicola Mill joined thousands across South Carolina in going on strike. Participation in the strike was so broad that during the strike's first few days, factories in South Carolina closed so rapidly that tabulators almost lost count. As later South Carolina representative and Honeypath native Olin D. Johnston stated, the strikes by textile workers were their final weapon of defense against mill owners who cared more about profit than the human beings whose bodies were breaking on the looms and factory floors day in and day out. The then governor of South Carolina, Ibra C. Blackwood, declared that the state was being invaded by a wave of mob rule. Vowing to keep factories running, Blackwood called out the National Guard and the State Highway Patrol. All across the state, local law enforcement, mill owners, and their lackeys harassed and threatened union workers. One law enforcement captain in Greenville, South Carolina, instructed his men to shoot to kill the strikers if necessary. Such anti-labor forces were not making idle threats either. Newly deputized anti-union thugs and their ilk were well-armed, including with items such as tear gas and machine guns. So what happened on September 6 in Honeypath, in hindsight, almost seems inevitable. The armaments wielded by the forces of capital in Honeypath included a World War I-era machine gun, which was placed on top of the Chocola Mill in Honeypath. A none-too-subtle threat from the mill owner and mayor of Honeypath, Dan Beecham. Beecham had initially requested that the governor send down the state militia to deal with strikers in Honeypath. For whatever reason, Governor Blackwood refused. Undeterred, Beecham, in his capacity as mayor, had 126 anti-union locals deputized and armed with pistols, rifles, and shotguns. The newly minted deputies showed little respect for their neighbors on the picket lines. In Honeypath, as in other places, those forces conscripted by the mill owners harassed, pushed, and taunted the striking workers. After several days of fistfights and shouting matches, Honeypath was said to be near the breaking point. Now, before the sun came up on the 6th, a flying squadron rode down to town to meet local strike supporters in front of the mill. Inside, cops and newly deputized officers waited. The screech, the morning whistle, signaled the battle's start. Strikers lurched towards the mill gate. Strikebreakers surged to the entrance. One man was smashed over the head with a club, and another was jabbed with a picker stick. Suddenly, a pistol shot sounded, followed by a flash of furious fire. When the guns fell silent three minutes later, seven strikers lay dead, and over a, many dozens were wounded. Claude Cannon, Lee Crawford, Ira Davis, E.M. Bill Knight, Maxie Peterson, C.R. Rucker, and Thomas Yarbrough all lost their lives that day, and all but one of them 
were shot in the back as they tried to flee. At least 30 more were injured. Eleven of the deputies involved were brought up on charges, and it will likely be of no surprise to anyone listening, they were all acquitted. As for Beecham, he claimed that he had not been present when the shootings occurred because he had gone home for breakfast. This was a lie. Decades later, it was revealed that he had been in attendance and had given the order to fire. Now, there are also contemporary accounts that place Beecham at the scene and even place him as one of the shooters. Two people who actually made this claim were arrested for perjury on the order of Beecham. The services for those who died that day was held in a field outside of town because no churches in the area would allow a service. This was not uncommon. Across the South, many textile workers found that their churches would not support them and their union. This lack of community support was one of the many reasons that the strike ultimately failed. For the workers gunned down in Honeypath, it is estimated that 10,000 people came to pay their respects, even though no local church would host the service. On September 20th, President Roosevelt's appointed mediation board recommended as a resolution to the strike the establishment of a permanent textile labor mediation board and federal studies to examine the industry's capacity to raise wages and lower workloads. The proposal offered striking workers virtually nothing, no pay, hike, or union recognition, or guarantees that they would have their jobs when the strike ended. The UTW was pressured by Roosevelt to end the strike and complied on September 22nd. Although the UTW framed the strike as an overwhelming victory, the reality is that many strikers were not able to go back to their jobs, and many of those who did had to sign yellow dog contracts, stating that they would not join the union. In Honeypath, workers were pressured to denounce the union and, upon being rehired, put under a gag order not to discuss the strike. In 1995, a small monument was erected at the site of the Chocola Mill, which reads, They died for the rights of the working man. These men were killed in Honeypath on September 6, 1934, in the general textile strike. This monument is dedicated to their memory, their families, and to all workers. We leave our homes in the morning. We kiss our children goodbye. While we slave for the bosses, our children scream and cry. And when we draw our money, our grocery bills to pay. Not a cent to spend for clothing, not a cent to lay away. And on that very evening, our little son will say, I need some shoes, mother, and so does sister May. How it grieves the heart of a mother, you everyone must know. But we can't buy for our children, our wages are too low. It is for our little children that seem to us so dear. But for us nor them dear workers, the bosses do not care. But understand all workers, our union they do fear. Let's stand together workers and have a union here. 
Now, if you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. You get shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. It ain't quite this simple, so I better explain just why you got to ride on the union train. Cause if you wait for the boss to raise your pay, we'll all be awaiting till judgment day. We'll all be buried. Gone to heaven. St. Peter will be the straw boss then. Now you know you're underpaid, but the boss says you ain't. He speeds up the work till you're about to faint. You may be down and out, but you ain't beaten. You can pass out a leaflet and call a meeting. Talk it over. Speak your mind. Decide to do something about it. Cause the boss may persuade some poor damn fool to go to your meeting and act like a stool. But you can always tell a stool, though, that's a fact. He's got a yaller streak running down his back. He doesn't have to stool. He'll always get along on what he takes out of blind men's cups. You got a union now and you're sitting pretty. Put some of the boys on the steering committee. The boss won't listen when one guy squawks, but he's got to listen when the union talks. He'd better be mighty lonely. Everybody decide to walk out on him. Suppose they're working you so hard it's just outrageous And they're paying you all starvation wages You go to the boss and the boss would yell Before I raise your pay I'd see you all in hell Well he's puffing a big cigar feeling mighty slick Cause he thinks he's got your union lick Well he looks out the window and what does he see But a thousand pickets and they all agree he's a bastard Unfair Slave driver Betty beats his wife Now, boys, you come to the hardest time. The boss will try to bust your picket line. He'll call out the police, the National Guard. They'll tell you it's a crime to have a union card. They'll raid your meeting. They'll hit you on the head. They'll call every one of you a damn red unpatriotic. Japanese spies. Sabotaging national defense. But out at Ford, here's what they found, and out at Vaulty, here's what they found, and out at Alice Chalmers, here's what they found, and down at Bethlehem, here's what they found, that if you don't let red baiting break you up, and if you don't let stool pigeons break you up, and if you don't let vigilantes break you up, and if you don't let race hatred break you up, you'll win. What I mean, take it easy, but take it. That was The Mill Mother's Lament, written by Ella Mae Wiggins, performed by Pete Seeger followed by the Almanac Singers with Talking Union. So let's jump one year ahead to 1935, to the town of Pelzer. Pelzer is another small town, about 18 miles to the north of Honeypath, just a little further up the Saluda River. Now, when the Union came to town initially, it was, by some accounts, well-received. Some superintendents even encouraged workers to join the Union. In Pelzer, there are four plants, one, two, and three, were located near the southern edge of town along the Saluda River. Plant 4 was located at the northern edge of town. During the 1934 general textile strike, the local in Pelzer actually opted to not strike. Regardless of this, flying squadrons from up in Spartanburg, South Carolina, came down and effectively shut the plant down. This caused some tension between the local, which had decided not to strike, and the National Union. The local felt that the UTW had disregarded their wishes. 
Despite this, Pelzer's participation in the 1934 strike ended peacefully, unlike what happened in Honeypath. The company closed down the plants, and from first-person accounts of the strike, the time away from work was viewed by many as a vacation rather than an industrial rebellion. Initially friendly, or at least as friendly as capital can be towards workers, as time went on, the company began to harden its stance towards the textile workers' union. A small local amusement park called the Monkey Park, where the union had been meeting, was close to them. This forced the union to begin to meet in the woods outside of town. Denied their usual meeting space, the union also found themselves being attacked from within. A local organization made up of union members, known as the Goodwill Organization, began to foster conflict within the union. These workers, while in the union, were very cozy with the mill owners and management. There's no available concrete evidence to say that the Goodwill Organization was the creation of the mill bosses, but it's very likely that they were the driving force behind this pro-boss fifth column within the union. The textile workers, even though they had the long hours and the low wages and the bitter strikes and the struggles, hard times, they always dreamed someday maybe it'll be different. And one time down in late 1940s in Rockingham, North Carolina, had a long strike there and one of the old workers came up with a poem which went like this, the mill was made of marble, the machines were made of gold. Nobody ever got tired and nobody ever grew old. And when he was asked about it, he said, well, that's the dream of the textile worker. Anybody knows anything about a textile mill knows that so many of them are old, dirty, red brick mills with a lot of noise and dirt and dust. I got this uh, poem from Pat Knight, who was with the textile workers at the time. I wound up with a little bit of music and then I added some words. And this song has spread, I can say, not only all over the United States, but many countries in the world, Spanish, translated to German. Somebody told me it's even sung in Russia. I haven't checked that out yet, but I guess they have to dream there too, because they have a lot of nightmares there. But this is the dream, I think, not only of the textile workers, but of a lot of people who dream of better life. So let's all dream together. I dream I had died. And gone to my reward A job in heaven's textile plant On a golden boulevard Where the mill was made of marble The machines were made out of gold And nobody ever got tired And nobody This mill was built in the garden. No dust or lint could be found. And the air was so fresh and so fragrant with flowers and trees all around. And the mill was made of marble. The machines were made out of gold. And nobody ever got tired. And nobody ever It was quiet and peaceful in heaven. There was no clatter or boom. You could hear the most beautiful music as you worked at the spindle and the moon. And the moon was made of 
The machines were made out of gold And nobody ever got tired And nobody We worked steady all through the year We always had food for the children We never were haunted by fear And the moon was made of marble The machines were made out of gold And nobody ever got tired And nobody ever I wondered if someday there'd be a mill like that one down below here on earth for workers like you and like me, where the mill was made of marble, the machines were made out of gold, and nobody ever got tired, and nobody That was Joe Glazer with The Mills Were Made of Marble. Attacked from within and without, the union in Pelzer began to hemorrhage members. The union was down to only 40% of those in the mills. Where had it been 90% in 1934? This prompted the local to change up leadership and elect a young man by the name of Paul Ross as the president of the local. Rank-and-file members of the union began to speak of striking to resolve some of the issues that workers faced in the mills. The new local president, Ross, wanted to wait until the newly penned Wagner Labor Act was passed. This act, which was one of the outcomes of the 1934 strike, enshrined many rights for working people seeking to form a union and engage in collective bargaining. Ross did not get his wish. Now, some folks in the local suspected that the company agents within the union were encouraging the workers to strike in order to have a better chance of breaking the union and ceasing any momentum that it was gaining in Pelzer. One night, in July of 1935, a vote was taken by the union in a field at night outside of town. Over the apprehension of local leadership, the union voted to strike. Paul Ross recounted that night that he felt as if we were sitting on a powder keg and I was hoping it wouldn't explode. His fears, as it turns out, would be very justified. Monday, July 15th. As the first shift of the day went home, the incoming second shift began to walk out, form pickets, and block access to the mill. It is unclear how many workers went out on strike in this initial wave. However many it was, though, it was not sufficient to shut down the mill. What followed was very predictable. William Johnston, brother of then-Governor Olin Johnston, member of, members of the Goodwill Organization, and company officials met to decide how to break the strike. With the support of the governor, the National Guard was brought in to make sure that those still going to the mill would not be interfered with by striking workers. The strike continued for several weeks, punctuated by meetings with representatives from state government, the mill owners, and the union. Despite urging from the governor, these parties were unable to come to an agreement. This was because the company steadfastly refused arbitration and on August 26 rejected a proposal by the Federal Textile Labor Relations Board. Governor Johnson, upon hearing of the failure of the negotiations, is quoted as saying that 
He had done everything humanly possible to get both sides together, but management has refused. Without cooperation from the mill owners, Governor Johnson ordered the removal of the National Guard from Pelzer. With the troops gone, the long-suffering strikers surrounded the four plants of Pelzer. As tensions grew, strikers and pro-mill owner forces began to pick up and carry firearms around town and to and from the mills. One Saturday evening at Plant 4, striking workers threw a stick of dynamite towards an assembling crowd of non-striking workers. The detonation, while it caused no bodily harm, scattered and scared the crowd away, and in the confusion, striking workers descended and took firearms and weapons dropped by the fleeing scabs. Across town, non-striking workers had gained access to Plant 1 and had fortified themselves within, displaying to all who arrived in an attempt to drive them out their stockpile of rifles. As evening descended, isolated gunfights erupted across town. Mill owners and local law enforcement in an attempt to regain control decided to keep the mills closed and attempted to block all the roads leading up to the plants. Monday morning arrived with the sound of the bells from the mills. The superintendent from Plant 1, Mr. Edwards, rolled up to the picket line outside the mill in his car. Cordially, surprisingly, he spoke with the striking workers about how things were. However, when he insisted that he be let into the plant, things turned sour. Not one to have his subordinates tell him what he could and couldn't do, Mr. Edwards suddenly jammed the vehicle down into a low gear and plowed into the line of striking workers. A brick was thrown through the back of Edwards' car, and that's when the real battle began. Gunfire erupted from the plant windows, where non-striking workers had fortified their positions. The picket lines broke and workers scattered for cover. Striking workers pitched dynamite at Mr. Edwards' car. The subsequent explosion didn't do any damage, but it was enough to rattle those non-strikers who had advanced out of the plant towards the Union workers. The gunfight left at least one person dead and several others wounded, including a young boy. None of the non-striking workers were injured, and multiple eyewitnesses shared accounts of local law enforcement opening fire at picketers. Across town at Plant 4, non-strikers had amassed in front of the picket line, Taunts were exchanged, and soon the area had erupted into another gunfight. Workers hid under houses from the gunfire, and Miss Clarence Dunlap recounted that, I had to crowd under the house to keep from getting shot. A truckload of them, strikers, went by to plant four. I knew they were strikers because my sister was one of them. At the end of all the shooting, over 20 people were injured, and Miss Kelly, one of the striking workers, lay dead. The next day, local headlines in Anderson, South Carolina, a neighboring town and the seat of the county, proclaimed, Pelzer, September 2nd, a blaze of gunfire marked the dawning of Labor Day in the textile village, leaving one person, mother of two children, dead and perhaps a score wounded, some of them seriously, as pent-up animosities of strikers and workers were loosed upon the morning when employees at the Pelzer Manufacturing Company approached the plants, unguarded for the first time in six weeks by the bayonets of National Guardsmen. By noon, the area was under martial law and nine strikers were under arrest. An agreement was soon reached by the union and the mill owners that allowed for the reopening of the mills, but prevented any outside agitators from gaining employment. After the strike's failure, the union quickly began to lose any power it had in Pelzer. Not long after Labor Day, the plants in Pelzer returned to their normal operations. The union and the Goodwill Club quickly dissolved in the wake of the violence of September. Bloody Monday, as it became known, was soon pushed out of mind. Unlike in Honeypath, there is no commemorative plaque or monument to the Union workers in Pelzer. 
As mentioned earlier, much of this history was taboo to talk about for many years in the upstate. The failures of the textile union in South Carolina, despite an indisputable impressive showing of workers, undoubtedly impacted future organizing efforts by labor unions in the state. It is not the intention of this episode to editorialize too much, but I would like to close with this thought. In recent years, we've heard time and time again in South Carolina that this is a pro-business state and that workers here aren't interested in organized labor. Right-to-work legislation, incredibly depressed wages, and a failure to remember and celebrate this state's labor history all play a part in keeping, as Dave Zappos opined many decades ago, the South Carolina workforce docile and contented. What happened in the 1920s and early 30s came as a shock to the industrialists who set up shop in South Carolina because of their confidence in the placability of workers here. What we are seeing these days in some ways is a repeat of the early 20th century. Many companies come to South Carolina for cheap labor and the promise that efforts by organized labor here will be opposed by the power of the state as well as those of capital. It is important that we remember that we've all been here before. As Utah Phillips put it, yes, the long memory is the most radical idea in this country. It is the loss of that long memory which deprives our people of that connective flow of thought and events that clarifies our vision not of where we're going, but where we want to go. This has been Renegade Paradise, and I've been your host, Nick. Conditions, they are bad, and some of you are sad. You cannot see your enemy, the class that lives in luxury. You working men are poor, will be forever more. As long as you permit the few to guide your destiny, shall we still be slaves and work for wages? It is outrageous has been for ages. Oh, this earth by right belongs to toilers and not to spoilers of liberty. The master class is small, but they have lots of gall. When we unite to gain our right, if they resist, we'll use our might. There is no middle ground. This fight must be won round to victory for liberty. Our class is marching on. Shall we still be slaves and work for wages? It is outrageous has been for ages. Oh, this earth by right belongs to toilers and not to spoilers of liberty. Oh, working men unite, we must put up a fight to make us free from slavery and capitalistic tyranny. This fight is not in vain, we've got a world to gain. Will you be a fool, a capitalist tool, and serve your enemy? Shall we still be slaves and work for wages? It is outrageous has been for ages. Oh, this earth by right belongs to toilers and not to spoilers of liberty.